I've been preaching a series through this book, and this is the passage now to which I've come. We read the chapter, we take verses 13 through 17 as our text for the sermon this afternoon. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We take verses 13 to 17 as our text. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout this passage, God is speaking to us as to our conduct as citizens of the great nation in which we live. As Christians who are subject to divine ordinances, easily and quickly we could conclude that God is not concerned with the way in which we relate to our civil government. Peter's made much of the fact that our citizenship is heavenly. We are pilgrims, we are strangers. Therefore, we could stand over against the worldly rulers with a spirit of pride. We don't need to listen to you. Our citizenship is heavenly. We might conclude, because we're Christians, and perhaps the ruler or the employer or the spouse is not a Christian, therefore, certainly we don't need to submit to their authority. The Roman Empire, as we well know, was a bastion of evil and corruption. And this posed a tremendous temptation to the people of God. The converted Christians during the apostolic time struggled in this regard. And we understand that. Wicked Nero held no respect in the eyes of Christians. God demonstrates that our godly conversation to which we are called, and that in the previous verses... Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That honest conversation now applies to every area of our life. And that's what the apostle here, by the inspiration of the Spirit now, is demonstrating. There's an inborn rejection of authority that's prominent in our sinful natures. We're rebels. And we're inclined to say, we'll determine who we will submit to and who we won't submit to. And we desire often to submit only to those with whom we agree. And the culture, the spirit of our society, serves that selfish end. A spirit of individualism, a spirit of rebellion. And we see that as people bristle at authority. And we see that in ourselves. And then we pass that bad attitude also off to our children. Pride, selfishness begins to rule, and we esteem self above others. We do battle against our own sinful nature. And the apostle here sets forth a wonder. He states here in verse 16 that you are the servants of God. You are the slaves of God. And as God's servants, your calling now is to live unto Him. It's to serve Him, not yourself. 
Easy it is to get caught up in the spirit of the age. God sets before us the essence and the basis on which this admonition rests. You belong to God. And as God's servants, you're not your own. Your life is not about you. It's not about what you think is good in your life. It's not about happiness and joy and pursuing what's easy in your estimation. You belong to Jesus Christ. And belonging to Jesus Christ as God's slaves, we submit then to the authority he establishes in our lives. And we acknowledge that they may, that may well mean for us suffering. It may mean for us tremendous opposition. The world about us stands in awe of that spirit. They can't understand it. That you would suffer? That you would suffer at the hands of an employer? That you would take suffering at the hands of a ruler? God comes to us here and says, you are a peculiar people. You are those whom I have called to show forth my praise. And now in this arena of life, here is the manner in which you show forth my glory. We look at this passage, God's slaves, noting the divine authority, the submission to which we're called, and the purpose for it. The divine authority is set forth here in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. We call God and Jesus Christ our Master and our Lord. And we need to understand what that means. God doesn't desire that we turn our backs to this world and the relationships of life that he's created. Rather, God calls us to live in this world and to be involved in the relationships in the service of Christ until he returns. Those who profess then to be pilgrims and strangers must learn how to live with regard to the relationships of life as pilgrims. We are called to live as Christians in every aspect of life. And in all of our relationships, we need to live in such a manner that reflects a sanctified and faithful use of those relationships for the glory and honor of God. In the home, as husband, as wife, as children, as parents, employees, employers, pastor, elders in the church, teachers in the classroom, school board members, professors, rulers, God appoints positions of authority placed in our lives by his hand. And Christ is the one who is ruling you and me by them. We confess to be pilgrims, to be strangers, who are called to live our life before the face of Jesus Christ. And we confess then, my life is not about me. It's not about what I want, what I desire. My life is bound up in Christ and his will. Now that requires a lot of prayer. It requires submission and guidance by the Spirit, looking to God, studying his word. And our submission and our obedience flows from the command of God for the Lord's sake. Our children sometimes ask us, why do I have to do that? And we say, because God requires it. We don't do it always because we can see the reasonableness of it. That we can understand why 
This would be good for me. There are times we can't understand it. We can't fathom. We can't see how this could be good or reasonable. But God says, for my sake, you will submit. And because he utters it, we submit by grace. There's a place in that regard for submission, obedience, without explanation. God simply commands that we submit without giving any kind of reason. We struggle with this at times as parents training our children. And with the discipline of our children, we understand the need for balance. There are times when our children need to be told, you obey, and you don't need a reason. We don't need to give an explanation. This is the way it has to be before God. Whether parents, teachers, rulers, employers. But there are other times when a reason is helpful. When we can explain to those with whom we're dealing the calling and the circumstances and the idea and the understanding of it. But we stand before Jehovah God as His servants, called to submit to Him. And we belong to Him by a wonder of grace. We call this servanthood a delight. Jehovah God has taken us and given us to know a life that's from above. And the apostle is making much of this throughout the epistle. The fact that you are something. You are something glorious by God's grace. You are a peculiar people. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is what God has made you. This isn't what you are of yourself. You were in darkness. Now God has brought you into light. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You were not the recipients of mercy. Now you are. Now God is talking in the context about temporal life. We know, as he notes from the beginning, from eternity God chose to himself a people, and God set his love upon them. Emphasizing the wonder of who we are by grace. We stand before God with awe and with thankfulness. Who are we that God has set his love upon me? That God has chosen me and set the wonder of that goodness by which I know now a regenerated life, a new heart, and now I live unto him. God pours His Spirit into our hearts and grants us the grace by which we submit to Him and we live then unto Him. We're not living for ourselves. We're not trying to get saved. God has saved us. And now we live unto Him in thankfulness and in praise. Now God exalted Jesus Christ to be a prince and a savior. We're inclined at times to give far more significance to Jesus Christ as savior than to Jesus Christ as Prince. He not only saves and delivers us from sin, but He's the one that requires that we do as He commands. And we submit to human ordinances then for the Lord's sake, because Jesus Christ is Lord. He's given absolute rule over the whole of the creation, including all the rulers. And He rules, we know, the wicked by His absolute might and power, He rules the church by His grace. Because Christ's rule is not arbitrary, and because we believe in the truth of providence, and because we understand the wonder of His love toward us in Jesus Christ, we confess that God is the one putting rulers 
He's putting the individuals in authority in our lives according to His sovereign love for us. It's not arbitrary. And the calling then that we have is to submit for Christ's sake. To see Christ's hand in and through all of these circumstances in life. We submit then as unto Christ. When we submit to those in authority, when you choose your parents, you're obeying Christ. When we submit to the office bearers, we submit to Christ's rule through them. When we submit to the rulers, we're submitting to Christ. And we realize the opposite of that. If we rebel against them, we're rebelling against Christ. Christ, who purchased us as His possessions on Calvary, so that we belong to Him, body, soul, mind, we are the Lord's. And God calls us now to live unto Him in everything that we do. The purpose of our lives is His glory and His honor. Am I living for myself? Or am I living as a slave to Jesus Christ, submitting to His Lordship? Do I confess Jesus is Lord of my life? Every aspect of my life. Or do I try to maintain myself as Lord over portions of my life? Beloved, this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and I'm His servant, His slave, has fundamental ramifications for every aspect of our life. And that's what the apostle here is getting at. And so he starts now with the application to authority. Then he's going to continue with application to the workplace. And then he's going to continue to marriage. And he demonstrates here how this truth that we belong to Christ and that He is the one who owns us as Lord has implications for every aspect of our life in terms of relationships. Submit yourselves to every human ordinance for Christ's sake. That's quite a responsibility. Now how are we to determine which civil governments are worthy of our submission and which are not? That's a question that right away rises up in our minds and one with which Christians in the past have wrestled. Beloved, God removes that question and He establishes the simple principle as Christians, you are to honor the civil government under which you live for God's sake. You don't have to look at the institution. Try to figure out what the purpose is behind it. Try to figure out whether they're godly or not in order to figure out what your responsibility is. You don't have to try to figure out whether you agree with everything that's going on or not. You don't have to try to figure out the consequences for obeying or disobeying and then try to figure out what decision you're going to make. Christians are called to submit. And they submit not for the government's sake, they submit for Christ's sake, who is my Lord, before whom I serve. The Christian can look at a king or a president and look him in the eyes and tell him, God is the one who's placed you in that position for his own glory and honor. And you are called to rule on God's behalf. And the Christian can also inform them that even though you may be a wicked, godless man who doesn't deserve to be honored, I will honor and I will submit to you for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. 
God is the one who places me in subjection to you. And God is the one who is pleased to glorify and honor himself through that submission. Now it's in that context that the apostle then includes the words of verse 16 as free. And it's important that we understand what that's talking about. We'll deal with it again later on. But for now, God's children are free in relation to fellow man and to the devil. Prior to conversion, the Christian stands before God as a condemned criminal, worthy of the death penalty. Shut up in the prison of death, guilt, shame, and deserves everlasting damnation in hell. God has redeemed us. God has delivered us. Jesus Christ broke open the prison doors, threw open the fetters of guilt and shame, and released his children from that bondage. And the Spirit of Jesus Christ now lives and dwells within us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so it's no longer the case that the Christian is a slave toiling in fear in a work that he abhors. He's now the child of God who knows the wonder of his deliverance, who stands before the living Christ in thankfulness and in joy for the place that God has given, motivated to serve him and to delight in him to all eternity. This liberty renders it unnecessary to maintain all the ceremonies and all of the observations of the civil law during the time of Moses. Freedom is enjoyed now in the realm of God's commands. This freedom does not mean that we may disregard fellow men. It doesn't mean that we set aside the civil authorities. It doesn't mean that the Christian is not subject at times to the most degrading of labors, treated even as an animal perhaps by some. But it means this, the Christian is free in regards to fellow men with regard to what he believes. No one has the power to dictate what he believes in terms of religion and moral duty. He acts according to the principles of his master who is in heaven, his Lord. And there's one judge that he will face, Jehovah. In relation to Jehovah, we're servants, slaves. God has purchased us to be his own and he's qualified us for that service by his spirit. As God's Servants, there's at least four things that characterize our obedience and our submission. It's implicit, it's impartial, it's cheerful, and it perseveres. First of all, it's implicit. We do what God commands because God commands it. Many do what God commands, but they never obey God or do it for God's sake. We love God, and out of love for God, we then pursue his will. And we're implicit in that obedience. But secondly, it's impartial. We don't pick and choose what we're going to believe and what we're not going to believe. We don't pick and choose what commandments we're going to obey and which ones we're not going to obey. Again, so easy it is for us, according to our sinful natures, to do that. And we compartmentalize our lives. And we hide from others in the areas where we can be private, then we can pursue certain things. Whereas areas that are public, then we don't. God calls us to keep all God's commandments as those who love Him. 
And we know that we love God and we obey God and we seek to maintain His will in every area of our life. Except when someone would require... Well, we obey rulers except when they would require of us something contrary to God's commandments, contrary to God's will. Thirdly, our obedience is cheerful. It's from the heart. It's not in a spirit of bondage. It's a spirit of gratitude. Finally, it's persevering. God doesn't require of us to serve him for a year, a couple years, then enjoy the pleasures of sin. We serve him night and day, all our life, looking forward to the days when we will be able to serve him to all eternity in glory without the battle against our sinful nature. While we're in this world then, as citizens of Jehovah God, we're called to live as citizens of a nation on earth. God freed us from the bondage to this world and the institutions of the devil, but God ordains that for a time we remain on this earth and we live in subjection to the institutions of this society. We live as slaves to God in joyful submission to his will, as free men bound in the service of our living God, a loving, a delightful service, knowing the wonder of his grace. It's that spirit now in which the apostle then, by the inspiration of God, calls us to submission. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. Now this seems a very strange admonition. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Surely there are some commands of men that a Christian is not bound to submit to. In no way are we to take this as a blanket requirement to submit to everything that anyone would require ever of us. Verse 13 makes clear in 14 as it explains it that this is talking about ordinances that are connected with the government, connected with the civil authority. The reference to every ordinance of man pertains to the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. Now there's a reason why Peter words it the way that he does by the inspiration of the Spirit. The Jews held themselves bound to subject to divine ordinances of the civil magistracy as would be laid down in the Bible. The ordinances that were embodied in Moses or the judges or by the Davidical kings, they regarded them as that which they would submit to. But human institutions ordained for that purpose, they doubted, they denied, on the ground that they were the chosen people of God. And as the chosen people of God, they submitted to God. And if they did yield obedience, it was only a matter of convenience, not a matter of obligation. And so now, the apostle comes, again, to admonish them that their perspective is wrong. You need to obey or you need to submit to these ordinances of authority for the Lord's sake. Now note that Peter does not call them to obey every human ordinance. He calls them to submit to that. And we understand the difference. There are times when Christians cannot and may not obey every human ordinance. Disobedience is required when the human ordinance would require of the believer to do something that would be contrary to God's will. Peter himself made that clear to the Sanhedrin 
In Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. They told them they could not preach. They could not teach about Christ. Peter said, no, we need to preach. We will preach about Christ. We must obey God rather than men. The command to submission is without exception. Even when we cannot obey and may not obey, we still must submit. And what does that submission entail? We're familiar with the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 104. Honor, love, and fidelity be shown to those who are in authority. And that submission, even when those in authority reveal weaknesses, infirmities, to show love, honor, and fidelity is difficult. Difficult especially toward wicked men. And so Peter here, after having explained the grand and glorious place that God has given to us as Christians, defining the wonder and the marvelous nature of who we are by God's grace, now reminds the people of God with respect to human institutions for the purpose of government, you are on the same level as all mankind with the duty to submit. The Christian pilgrim is not one who opposes the magistrates, who plots against them, who tries to organize opposition against them. We submit to suffering, submit to unjust treatment without fighting back, without cursing those who are persecuting us. And that's part of the laying aside of the fleshly lusts and living an honest life in the midst of this world. And later on in the chapter, Paul goes to Christ as our inspiration and example. Hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. When we look around us, it would be shock to see how the world responds to authority. Shock when we see how children treat their parents. When we see how students treat teachers. Shock when we see how the government is mocked and ridiculed by the citizens. And as we witness and as we see that spirit, it's no wonder that in sports, for instance, it's so difficult to find referees. They don't get much respect. The world has no idea of the seriousness of the fifth commandment as it applies to authority and government. And the result is that institutions break down. God shakes the foundations and society devolves into increasing chaos. But in the midst of it stands God's children who are his servants, who are living as a light in the midst of that darkness. Peter understood the seriousness of this admonition. Peter's writing this letter in the mid-60s A.D. Nero's mother wanted Nero to be the ruler instead of his other, her other son, Claudius. And so Nero's mother had Claudius, the heir apparent, poisoned so that Nero could become the ruler at the age of 17 in the year 54. Nero was not a good ruler. 
He was constantly concerned that someone else was going to take the rule from him. And so in year 55, he had his stepbrother killed. He executed his own mother in the year 59. His wife was executed in the year 62. Seneca, his faithful counselor, committed suicide. Nero was a tyrant. Now when Peter was in the city of Rome, the Christians would refer to Rome as Babylon. They believed it to be the great whore of Revelation. And we're familiar with the history. In the year 64, a fire broke out that was blamed on the Christians. Likely Nero himself had started it. But the persecution of the Christians then progressed in retaliation for that supposed crime, resulting in a persecution unlike had been experienced by the church previously. It was that persecution that would claim the life of Peter. And Peter was not naive then with regard to the rulers of the world. Peter did not grow up in a so-called Christian nation. He knew the depravity of human nature and the tremendous evil that rulers were able to perform. And God raises up Peter to write these words in that context. Jesus Christ established, established the rule while he was on earth. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus had already established clearly what was the calling and responsibility toward the authorities, even though they were wicked. The apostles continued that instruction. Every soul is to be subject to the higher powers, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. Now Peter says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. If Peter could set this before the Christian community of his time, beloved, how much more in our day and age? We have rulers who are immoral, rulers who support barbaric activities, but who can compare to Nero and to Herod? And Peter begins now with application to these human earthly rulers because he knew this would be most important to emphasize to the Christians in this day. As God's people living honestly in the midst of this world, this was where they needed to examine themselves. The Roman emperors were wicked. Many of them claimed to be divine. They required that the citizens worship them. Others were putting to death those that feared Jehovah. It was no wonder then that the Christians had concluded during this time, we don't need to submit to these wicked men. So that this instruction of Christ and the apostles comes as a tremendous shock, no doubt. Imagine living when relatives are being killed, when Christians are being persecuted, and then coming to church on Sunday morning and hearing this admonition, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, for this is the will of God. These ordinances are human, they're earthly, but those who have the life of Christ, who are strangers in the midst of this world, are called to subject themselves for Christ's sake. God ordained government. Government is not an institution of men. God is the one who ordained government for the sake of his church, and for his glory. And God is the author of that government. He created the human family as the first expression of that authority, that submission, and all of the other realms flow out of that. Sin has corrupted it, but not removed the calling given to Christians. 
As long as God's children are in the midst of this world, renewed by grace, we are called to submit. For the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. That's set forth here as the calling that these rulers have. Christ not only sets the presidents and the prime ministers and the princes, he sets the senators, the legislatures, he sets the rulers on the lower state levels, county, city government. And the calling that God gives to those rulers is punish evil and praise the good. Those who are evil are those who break the laws of the land. Laws of the land that should reflect the laws of God. Well-doers are those that are law-abiding citizens. Rulers know the difference between right and wrong, regardless of whether or not they're Christians. Romans 1 establishes that fact. All men know what's right and what's wrong. They know what they ought to do. Now, as sin develops through the ages, leaders increasingly make laws that approve of sin, laws that condemn what's right before God. And we see that happening in our land. Homosexual marriage promoted. To speak against it or to condemn it is considered a hate crime. But this qualification notes an important principle that's taught through the Scripture. The ruler has authority in the realm of the state. He doesn't have authority in the shop, in the home, in the church. The government has no authority in our homes. A man may be given, for instance, to swearing, to cursing, to getting drunk in his own home. While that's disobedience to God, the government is not going to come into his home and apprehend him or imprison him for his actions. If he goes outside of his home and starts cursing and swearing and becoming drunk and disorderly, then the government is going to apprehend him and discipline him. Within the church, the power of the keys of the kingdom are administered by the elders. The government has the power of sword as it's entrusted to it to punish evil. And there's a separation we understand between church and state. But at the same time, an overlap in that the church registers with the state. The state pledges to protect the church. Due to sin, however, often the state becomes anti-Christian and uses its power then to persecute, to kill those who are doing well and to defend those who are doing wickedly. This has been the case throughout all of history. Daniel did good, and he was punished. Jesus did good. He was crucified. When this happened to Christ, Christ said, this will happen to all those who belong to me. Those who belong to me are going to face this same opposition. Do we rebel? Do we institute a revolution and by force try to overthrow the wicked government? No. We're called to submit, even as our Lord did. Now that submission takes a number of forms. One of the most important forms is the payment of tribute. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. We may not refuse to pay our taxes. We may not seek to evade because we believe it's unwise or it's unequal or it's sinful or paying our taxes is supporting things that are unlawful or wicked. We submit. Paying our taxes, knowing full well portions of them are going to be used in unchristian ways. And praying then that we not be guilty for those sins. And praying for the authority that God has placed. That God would convict them, if it be His will, of that disobedience and rebellion. We submit by speaking with and showing respect unto our leaders. 
to despise government, to speak evil of those in authority, is condemned. A government may be thoroughly evil, but that doesn't remove the Christian again from his or her responsibility to submit. Submit to every ordinance, regardless of the form it wears. Monarchy, democracy, anarchy, whatever. And we submit by praying for those in authority, according to 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. We pray for freedom, for the gospel, that the gospel would go forth for the salvation of God's church. We pray for God's work of salvation and that God will use those in authority for the good of his church. We pray that God will equip those whom he calls to positions of authority with the strength to rule well for the good of the church. And we honor all men. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. And we honor the king. Verse 17. Those four admonitions conclude, in a sense, this section and define that submission. Honor all men. Rather than this being a calling to love our neighbor, more specifically here, this is referring again to rulers. Honor your president, congressmen, officials, judges, mayors, councilmen. Honor them by recognizing the office that they hold is by Christ. And Christ is the one who placed them there. And therefore, we see Christ's hand in them. Love the brotherhood. It's hard being pilgrims and strangers. So easy it is to disagree over the details related to these admonitions. And so quickly the devil seeks to use that to disrupt his church and to divide his church. So easy it is for us to get upset with others and to promote our own ideas and to criticize those around us. We experienced that during COVID. The devil uses authority and challenges of submission and honor to try to divide Christ's church. How important it is to be reminded of this calling. Love the brotherhood. Do what you can to help your fellow saints. Forget yourself. Uphold those that are in need, those that are faltering. And in extreme, when there are some that land in prison, perhaps they're unjustly punished, visit them. Encourage them. Love the brotherhood. Pray for one another in the calling in which God sets you. Fear God. Only God's children are able to fear Him. This is a fear that rises from the work of God's grace in the hearts of His children. And God's fear is a gift of God's grace earned by Christ. It's a power by which we know the love of God. We know God as our covenant-keeping God, and we desire to live in obedience to Him. And we see His hand in every area of our life. We see His hand also in the positions of authority. And the fear of God then underlies all of our decisions, and it becomes the motive behind our submission. We love God. And the fear of God is the motive of our loving one another. God brought us together in His mercy. He's knit us together as a body of Jesus Christ in this spiritual warfare. And in the pursuit of one goal, we go forward. God's glory and heaven as our eternal dwelling place. And then finally, honor the king. Everything is summed up here. Honor speaks of the whole of our calling toward those in authority. Submission, obedience, when possible, love, respect, loyalty, all of these included in honor. God's pilgrims rise up in an area that's lost in our society. We're not rebels. We show our love and our fear of God in our relationship with rulers. 
And we seek to be a witness in that regard of the power and the wonder of God's grace in us and through us. Why? What's the purpose of this admonition? For so is the will of God, verse 15, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's a striking reason that the apostle here gives. God's people must do good works and must walk in the way of sanctification. Now we know the ultimate reason is God's glory. God is the one who is to be praised. But here the passage says, God will use such to silence wicked accusations. Though this may not be the primary purpose of our obedience and our thankful walk, it's an important purpose. Ultimately, we're doing it for God and for His glory. But God's people live in the midst of this world. And by their walk and conduct, show themselves distinct from the wicked. The wicked are revolutionary. The wicked are disobedient. They refuse to submit. The wicked are every man for his own will and his own pursuit. God's children acknowledge God as their king. They confess to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Now, the foolish men among the heathen would conclude then that means that those Christians, they're not going to submit to Caesar because they claim Jesus is Lord and therefore they must deny then Caesar as king and Lord. That was the accusation they brought against Jesus. If Jesus says that God is the one who is his Lord, then surely he's not submitting to Caesar. They foolishly think For us to recognize Christ as king means that we're revolutionists, that we're revolting. And so by walking in submission, by showing respect, the Christians put to silence that ignorance of the heathen. Men are foolish with regard to their understanding of the life and walk of the Christian. They don't understand why the Christian lives and walks the way that he does. And so the apostle says here, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For so is the will of God that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. By walking in submission and showing respect, that ignorance is put away. Christians are the best citizens of the countries in which they live. Christians take an active role in holding their leaders accountable for their God-given calling. Christians do not always obey, but when they disobey, they submit. And they must be willing then to take the punishment for that disobedience. We stand with Daniel, refusing to pray to the king, willing then to be thrown in a den of lions. That's true submission. We're not resisting the punishment, but doing good means we take it. And this is especially going to be an issue when the end of time comes. The anti-Christian kingdom and the authorities are going to require the mark of the beast in order to eat, in order to do business. Excuses are going to be suggested as to just take the mark and do it for these reasons. Christians in those last days, by God's grace, will stand for what is right and what is good, walking humbly before their God as servants of Jehovah God, maintaining His will, refraining from obeying, but also refraining from resisting and from revolution and willing to take suffering for well-doing. 
What a powerful witness. For good, God will use that to draw his elect to himself and to leave the wicked without an excuse of their evil deeds. But then also related to that is as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Verse 16. The apostle here addresses concern that now God's children are in bondage to human ordinances. You're slaves to Christ. Freedom for Christ's slaves means to be in complete conformity with the law of God. Freedom is fulfilling the purpose for which you've been created, to love God and to love the neighbor. Adam and Eve possessed that freedom in paradise. They lost it through the fall. The lie of the devil was, you could attain freedom by sinning. And that's the lie the devil continues to bring at us. You want to be free? You want to know joy? Walk in the ways of sin. That's an outrageous lie. Man fell into bondage to sin. And though men and women claim to be free, they're slaves, slaves to the devil and to sin. And they're bound on a path that leads to hell. There's nothing they can do to escape it. It's only God's grace that is able to free. And the child of God, freed by the power of that grace, is in bondage to God. But he's free. He enjoys the wonder of that salvation, the blessedness, the joy, the peace. And as a slave of Christ, he bears then the marks of Christ, according to Galatians 6, verse 17. Now God provides us with an arena in which we show what it means to be Jehovah's slaves. We show ourselves to be distinct from the wicked world around us. We go to church. We pray. We support Christian education. We talk. We dress differently. The antithesis is readily seen in our walk and in our conduct. And God's children submit and walk as faithful servants to God to give Him glory. Now, it's always a temptation to use that liberty as a cloak of sin or maliciousness. And that's what the apostle here is talking. In other words, engage in sinful behavior and then justify it by appealing to my freedom. Desecrate the Sabbath, but then condone it by saying, but we're free in Christ. We're not really bound to human institutions or regulations. That I don't have to pay all my taxes. I can cheat on this or that or the other thing. I don't have to buy a fishing license. I don't have to buy a hunting license. I can get by with not doing this or that or this other ordinance. Claiming to be themselves free from human ordinances. Using their liberty as an occasion to cover sin. That's not what the child of God may do or must do. We repent. We turn away from that spirit. That's the sin of the antinomian. He says, we're free. We don't need to listen to the law. We're saved by grace. We don't want in any way to act as though we have to do something and then on the basis of that, somehow our salvation is dependent upon that. They pretend to be free, but they're living in sin. They use their liberty as an occasion to bring shame on what it means to be a Christian. Freedom from God's law is slavery to sin. Slavery to God is freedom to live unto God and to His glory. Every verse in our text directs our attention to God and to His glory as the focus of our actions. And that ultimately is the purpose. We submit to every ordinance of man for God's sake. 
The rulers are sent by God for His glory. The will of God is that we walk in well-doing. This is what it means to be a servant of Jehovah God. And we're willing to live unto God. We're willing to suffer for God's sake, if that be so required. And we look to Him for the strength and the grace to uphold and to preserve us. Beloved, we are God's slaves, belonging to Him by a wonder of grace. And this is God's will for us. So different from anything that the world can understand. They mock, they ridicule. But beloved, our lives stand as the answer to that ridicule. When accused of a lack of patriotism, we answer with lives of thankfulness and obedience to the laws of the land. We bow before the throne of Christ, looking for a better country, that is, and heavenly. And we serve our Lord now in every area of our lives. Our Lord, who is pleased to rule us for a time through rulers who may not love Him nor us. But this is our calling. And we look to God for the grace to perform it for His glory. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things Thou hast done for us, giving us to know the wonder of Thy grace, giving us to know the wonder of Thy love in Jesus Christ, granting unto us that glorious designation that we are a people called to show forth thy praise, set aside, set apart, and cause, Lord, that by our walk and our witness we might give evidence of the power of thy grace and the glory that is due unto thy name. Forgive us our sin, our rebellion, and grant unto us that wonder by which we might know that our lives are hid up in Christ. Amen.